Uh, so we've been reading from Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 30. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Sarapheth, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with uh, leprosy, in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman in in Syrian. Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But when he walked right, right through the crowd and went on his way. Warwick very much. I think I've got my microphone on. I think I've got everything in order. I'm, I'm learning. Give me a few more goes and I'll get things straight. Um, please uh, keep uh, some marker in Luke chapter 4 that we've just had read for us uh, and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5 as well. If you can have those two, place, these two uh, passages open or accessible and we'll pray together as we turn again to God's word. You remember the occasion when Jesus said to his friends, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our minds, that we might so understand the scriptures to which we now turn, that we will delight in the goodness and the greatness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, in our first study this morning, we began to think about the state of the world. Well, that's a very big subject, isn't it? And um, you... um, need to realise you're in the hands of a speaker who has no idea what's going on in the world, really, at the level of detail. Uh, It's a very confusing world we are in. Um, And those of you, and there's a few of us here who are 
who are older and have and can think back decades I think we are in the most confusing time that I can remember again at a whole lot of levels I don't want to go through that again because we're not focusing so much on the many particular complicated issues today that certainly need careful responsible thought in the light of the Bible's teaching we ought to be people who who don't run away from these subjects we don't live in a little bubble of Christians who don't care about what's going on in the world we ought to care and we ought to think and we ought to put our minds but what we must be careful of that we don't just think that we have the answers to all the issues I'll um, I'll take my life into my hands now really to illustrate a point not to make a point if you understand what I mean um, so it's on all of our minds this referendum coming up right it's really hard to talk about isn't it it's hard to talk about humbly because people aren't humble about it I'm not talking about you I'm just talking about myself and people around me um, people are so convinced of their opinion about this one way or the other we Christians above all people ought to be able to talk about this we ought to be able to talk about it in a way that says our unity with one another in Christ is bigger than any particular issue this issue may be I'm, I'm not going to get into an argument about one side or the other about this but this issue may be so complicated that all Christians don't agree on the conclusion on this thing I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that but we we've got to be able to talk about it but we're living in a world where it's very hard to talk about it and that's part of what I'm trying to say about the, about the confusion of our world where You've, you've, you've seen, anyway, I won't, it, but it illustrates the point of it, the trouble we're in, where we find it difficult to talk to one another, and there are so many issues that are like that. But we not, I'm not suggesting that we run away from those issues, but this weekend in our studies here, we're not trying to sort out the particulars of all, all the many issues we could talk like that. We're doing something that I want to suggest is even more important than sorting out the particulars. We're trying to see how the Bible shows us that the state of our world today was once reflected in the state of the nation of Israel from the 9th to the 6th centuries BC. That's what you cover in the book of Two Kings. We're, we're not, of course, for a moment saying that world was like our world. I mean, the differences are massive. They're huge. This is ancient history. Here we are in what we call, I suppose we call, it, we, we call ourselves the postmodern world, don't we? If, 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 we don't know what we're talking about when we say that, but never mind. But what, what I'm suggesting is that as we reflect on it, we'll see that in principle, their world is like our world. And by seeing the Bible's treatment of their world, what the Bible has to say about that world, if we'll put in the work, we'll, we'll, we'll learn to understand more in principle and in depth what's going on in our world. And what's going on? Well, it's almost like a theme that will run through our thinking through the weekend. Claiming to be wise, they've become fools because they've exchanged the glory and the goodness of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave them up. That's what the Old Testament book of two kings is about. That's what happened in Israel. It's what's happened in our world. And so seeing and growing in our understanding of what went wrong back then 
The Bible gives us a lens through which to see the truth about our troubled world. What's going wrong now, really? Well, we're turning uh, in this study to uh, an incident in 2 Kings chapter 5. And we had the reading from Luke chapter 4 because it's an incident to which Jesus referred uh, when he spoke to the folk in the Nazareth synagogue in Luke chapter 4. If you've got Luke 4 there, look at verse 27 where Jesus said, uh, in the context of, the, of, of all that he was saying, he said, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And uh, Jesus' words on that occasion, you notice how that story worked out? Uh, his words on that occasion so enraged those who were listening that they would have, if they could have, hurled him off a cliff. They actually tried to. Now, I think that's a bit of an overreaction to a sermon, don't you think? <laughs> I hope you think so. <laughs> but I'm beginning to wonder what impact the story of Nahum and the Syrian might have on us. Let's see. So, 2 Kings chapter 5, back there. And in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, we find ourselves no longer in Israel as we were in the first chapter in our first study, but we're now in the land of Syria. Uh, the NIV calls it uh, uh, Aram, Aram. Uh, and I won't go into why there are those two names, but uh, I probably will keep saying Syria, so don't be confused when you see Aram in your Bible. It means the same thing. Uh, Aram, Aram or Syria is up to the north of Israel, and that's where we are now. Uh, this nation, I'm going to call it Syria, uh, had been a menacing enemy of Israel over many, many years. Um, I like to think that Syria was to Israel a bit like Russia is to the Ukraine. It was a bit like that. Great big bully boy who kept on causing trouble uh, in the smaller nation uh, of Israel. Indeed, a few years earlier, King Ahaziah's father, who was Ahab, uh, he'd been killed in a battle with the Syrians. Uh, that's the story at the end in the last chapter of 1 Kings. Well, our story begins, and you, you've got some notes there. I think it's on page 6 of your booklet if you like that sort of thing. Number 1, a great man in serious trouble. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man. Great man with his master and in high favour because... By him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valour, but he was a leper. Now, that's a rather inter interesting introduction to Naaman. What do we know about him? He was, he was the commander who would have led Syria's army in the battle with Ahab a few years earlier when Ahab was killed. Uh, I wonder whether one of the medals clinking on his chest might have celebrated his taking out of King Ahab of Israel. But did you notice the astonishing words uh, that I just read? Naaman was a great man in Syria because, <laughs> can you make sense of this? Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Not that anyone in Syria understood this, but that's the truth about Syria's victory over King Ahab. You just read through 1 Kings chapter 22 and you'll see it. Now, I bet that wasn't on any of the medals clinking on his chest. 
that the Lord had given victory to Syria. But it's the truth. And our writer wants us to be very clear. Naaman's greatness had come to him from the Lord, the God whom King Ahaziah had disregarded in chapter 1. Now, whether Naaman knew it or not, which he didn't, but we are to keep that in mind. However, like many great and successful people, Naaman was not immune from life's troubles. He was a leper. Uh, it's a debilitating skin disease. It's not precisely the same as what we call leprosy today, but that hardly matters. It was a serious uh, skin disease that people could have with varying degrees of seriousness. So, one, a great man in serious trouble. He's a little bit like King Ahaziah last time, isn't he, with, with, with his injuries. Uh, great people are not immune from having a fall. Uh, this man was not immune from illness. Two, a little girl with an unlikely idea. Verse two, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. This little girl was one of the many victims of the power wielded by the great Naaman. Cruelly, she had been wrenched from her family and this little child found herself in Syria, a slave in Naaman's household. Well, one day this kid said something very strange to Naaman's wife. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, Would that my lord, that's Naaman of course, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Well, children say all sorts of things, don't they? But somehow, this little girl's chatter reached the ears of the Syrian king. I've no idea why, because literally, verse 4, none of our translations quite put it like this, but literally it says, so someone went in and told his master, his lord, that's the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. Uh, the original doesn't say, as our translations do, that it was Naaman who conveyed this information to the king. I rather suspect it was not. Uh, I doubt that the mighty Naaman would take the words of a little, girl, little slave girl particularly seriously, especially such weird words as she had spoken. But someone told the king. And so we have a great man in serious trouble, a little girl with an unlikely idea, and three, high-level confusion. Perhaps it shows how desperate the king of Syria was to, to help his favourite general that he bothered to take any notice of the prattling of this little slave girl. For whatever the reason, I don't know what it was, but the king said to Naaman, verse 5, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. I'll sort this out, says the king. King to king, we'll sort this out. The king of Israel, by, this, by the way, uh, by this stage is Ahaz, Ahaziah's brother by the name of Jehoram. Uh, we needn't worry about, about all that, but I'll refer to him by name a, a, a number of times. Now, Naaman obeyed his king, verse 5 again, so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. See, he was like many powerful and wealthy people. Naaman and his king thought that whatever they wanted, 
at the end of the day, it could be bought. About 340 kilograms of silver, 90 kilograms of gold, a great pile of luxury garments, that should do it. And so the horses and the chariots, laden with their wealth, made their pompous way to Israel's royal city, to Samaria. I want you to try and picture the scene and the puzzlement on the, uh, on the faces of those who saw them coming. This wasn't an army this time, but here was Naaman with these piles of stuff. And verse 6, And Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, King Jehoram was not particularly amused by this. Verse 7, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. He said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Syria must be playing some sort of game. He's looking for what we call these days a false flag. Jehoram was scared. He was confused. He was at a loss what to do. And I want to suggest that we're being shown here both kings are fools. One put his hopes in his wealth and his political influence and his pr the pressure that he could exert to get what he wanted. The other actually had no idea of the power that was at work in his kingdom, as we will see. He knew less, the king of Israel, he knew less really about his kingdom than the little slave girl back in Syria. High-level confusion. Four, higher higher level clarity. See, here's the thing that few people ever understand. Certainly few powerful people ever understand. And it's this. There is a higher authority than the highest human authority. The little girl understood this. Actually, everyone needs to understand it. And so, verse 8, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may, he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Something you may have forgotten, your majesty. Like your brother, you're disregarding the fact, and it is a fact, your majesty, that there is a prophet in Israel because there is a God in Israel. You know who Elisha is, don't you? Elisha is Elijah's successor. We met Elijah in chapter 1. Now Elisha is, uh, Elijah's gone in a way that you may be familiar with. It's rather spectacular. We're not looking at it. <laughs> Wish we could. It's really rather good. But you, 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 you can, that's homework as well. But Elisha is, is now the prophet of whom the little girl had spoken, the prophet in Israel. Now, the prophet has sent a message to King Jehoram, brother of Ahaziah. How do you think the king would react? Was he relieved? Oh, here's a way out. Probably something like that. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots 
and stood at the door of Elisha's house. It must have been quite a sight. The Syrian commander, the great man, the mighty man with his noisy, ostentatious retinue crammed into what I imagine was the narrow street outside Elisha's rather modest house. And the great man himself dismounted and stood waiting at the door of the house. From inside the house, Elisha sent a servant to the door, verse 10, with a strange, blunt message. There was a simple instruction, see in verse 10, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And there was an extraordinary promise. And your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Well, that's not quite what Naaman was expecting. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. I need a psychologist to come and help me understand this. But it's quite clear, isn't it, that Naaman knew how an important person like him should be treated, and it wasn't like this. <coughs> I thought that he would, I thought he'd at least come to the door. I thought he'd put in some effort. I've come all this way, and all I get is a servant telling me to go and wash in that excuse for a river they call the Jordan. He was angry, you see, in verse 11, and he went off in a rage, verse 12. He felt mocked. He wasn't respected as he ought to be respected. He couldn't understand. How could that muddy trickle that they call the Jordan, what had that got over the pure, cool waters of the rivers of Syria? I'm not putting up with this nonsense, he said to himself. See, it pride. Pride takes, makes a fool of many great ones, especially when confronted with the clear, simple, direct word of God. The word of God always seems foolish to proud people. Always. Wash and be clean. Don't be ridiculous. Think about it. Believe and be saved. I've never heard anything so silly. Repent. And be forgiven. I'm not putting up with that nonsense. See, the instruction is plain and simple. Too simple. Not sophisticated enough. Beneath your dignity. But the promise, the promise is absolutely marvellous. And that's what the word of God is like. And those who do not receive what is promised have only one person to blame, namely themselves. I'm not putting up with this nonsense. Oh, my friend, beware of such pride. Beware of such pride where the word of God is not up to your expectations. Where 
what the word of God requires of you is too simple for you, too easy, too humbling. He went off in a rage. Well, once again in this story, wisdom comes from the less important people. It happens a number of times through the book of Kings. It's a little feature to look out for if you're reading through the book. Where, uh, verse 13, but Naaman's servants came near and said to him, uh, the translations differ a bit. The NIV is certainly a bit different from this. I'll just read it this way. It, won't make, it doesn't make much difference to the flow of the story. But my ESV says, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Uh, let me summarise wh whatever the translation might be. It's something like, really, sir, you ought to get off your high horse. <laughs> and under pressure from his servants, it seems, Naaman reluctantly made his way to the Jordan River. In verse 14, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. He didn't wash, he dipped there was no enthusiasm in it. He did it as lightly as he could. But he did do it seven times and it was in the Jordan. And so our writer adds, I think rather generously in verse 14, according to the word of the man of God. We might call this faith like a grain of mustard seed. But to Naaman's and ab to ab certainly to everybody else's utter astonishment, verse 14 again, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. I won't go into the vocabulary here, but it's quite interesting. There's a little echo of the little girl. He became like the little girl back in Syria in more ways than one. And so finally we see five, a great man made new. See, at this point, I suppose Naaman could have returned directly to Syria. Leprosy gone. But he didn't. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God. He and his whole company. And he came and stood before him. The language here is actually the language or the vocabulary of repentance. He returned. And you'll soon see he's no longer resentful. He's no longer defiant. But he's humbled. And he's thankful. He's a different man. He's a man made new. You see, obedience, however tentative, however half-hearted, that obedience to the simple word of God had received what God's word had promised. And listen to him now. He said, this is in verse 15 still, he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Isn't that astonishing? From the great commander of the army of Syria, the only God in all the earth is the God in Israel. We know that there are a whole lot of people in Israel who rejected what Naaman now knew. You remember chapter 1? Is it because there is no God in Israel? Really? Now behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 
You see how Naaman's story is strikingly different from Ahaziah's? And he continued in verse 15, So accept now a, a gift or a present from your servant. Literally, it's a blessing. In humble gratitude to the man of God, from, notice that, your servant. This is Naaman speaking to Elisha. Your servant. Wow. Verse 16, but Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Literally, it's I will not take. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. See, Elisha was a man who was not going to compromise the generosity of God's gift to Naaman by taking anything from him. He wasn't going to make it confusing. This is about God's grace. You know, you're not going to pay for it, Naaman. Elisha wasn't going to turn God's kindness to Naaman into an opportunity for him to take. No way. Well, it seems that Naaman accepted Elisha's refusal with good grace. But he had two other requests, each of which arising from the changed man that he now was. The first one is a bit odd. Uh, the second one really, really important. The, the, the odd one goes like this, verse 17. Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god but the Lord. Now I think Naaman may, and may not have sorted everything out theologically at this point. Um, you know, he hadn't been to more college yet and all that sort of thing. And I'm not sure that would have helped him, by the way. <laughs> but at the very least, you can see he's serious. He wanted to stay, what's going on in his mind is something like this. I don't know exactly what it is, but something like this. He wanted to stand on Israelite soil, so to speak, as he worshipped the one God in all the earth. The second thing on his mind was something I think we can relate to a little bit more directly. Because to live out the truth that Naaman now knew, there's only one God in all the earth, the God that he'd encountered in Israel, to live out that truth, to live out his knowledge of that truth in Syria, well, that was not going to be simple. For instance, he says in verse 18, in this matter may the Lord pardon your servant or forgive your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. This is another one of those jokes, actually. Um, there's another play on names here. Um, Raman, R-A-M-M-A-N, uh, the thunderer, was another name for Baal among the Syrians, Raman. But in a rather delightful expression of his new faith in the one God and all the earth, Naaman now calls the thunderer Rimmon, which means the pomegranate. I like that. But his problem was that from time to time he would be required to accompany his king into the pagan temple and perhaps even to bow down there. What, what to do? And he asked that the Lord, the one God in all the earth, would pardon him, that the Lord would not hold such actions against him. <laughs> this really is utterly extraordinary. A foreigner standing before the man of God asking forgiveness from the God of Israel concerning his life 
in a pagan land and culture because the God in Israel is the one God in all the earth. Of course, there were a whole lot of people in Israel who did not see things so clearly. Elisha's reply is brief but profound. He said in verse 19, go in peace. No need to be anxious, Naaman. Go in peace. The one God of all the earth, he can cope with the complexities of life in a pagan world. Go in peace. Well, Naaman had not gone far before this story took another twist, but that's beyond our scope uh, in this study, uh, or we'll never get any lunch. So let's pause and think about this story. What do we make of this? Particularly, what do we make of the fact that several centuries later, the people in that Nazareth synagogue, when Jesus referred to this story, were furious. It's odd, isn't it? Why? Well, at least this, I think, I take it Jesus was saying that they, the people before him in the synagogue, were like the people of Israel in Naaman's day, who paid little attention to the prophet in their midst. Unlike Naaman, the Syrian, who however reluctantly obeyed the word of the prophet and was cleansed. Too many in Israel made the mistake that Naaman nearly made. Too proud, too sophisticated, too clever, too self-absorbed. Wash and be clean? No way. And friends, the trouble with Israel in Naaman's day, in Jesus' day, is the trouble with our world. There is but one God in all the earth. There really is. And something greater than Elisha has come. Jesus Christ is the one to whom unclean people need to come for cleansing, but we're talking now about a cleansing more wonderful than Naaman's. You know the words, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Too many in our world make the mistake that too many in Israel made, too proud, too sophisticated, too clever, too self-absorbed. Believe and be saved, repent and be forgiven, no way. I'm not putting up with that kind of nonsense. Claiming to be wise they have become fools, exchange the exchanging the glory and the goodness of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave them up. Those who do not receive what is promised by the word of God, and what is promised is marvellous beyond words. It's certainly marvellous, well beyond cleansing from leprosy. Have no one to blame but themselves. And the foolishness is staggering. And friends, I wonder whether in a gathering like this, it is very likely indeed that there are some of us here who need to get down off our high horses and submit to the simple call of Jesus Christ. Lord, I come to you. 
make me clean from every stain, every stain, believe and be saved, repent and be forgiven. It is so simple. It's real. But it is humiliating. But worth it. Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We bow our heads before the God who speaks a simple word to us, as simple as the word that came to Naomi. Wash and be clean. Believe and be saved. Repent and be forgiven. Oh God and Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask for that cleansing that Jesus has made possible. Many of us to be cleansed once again, to be forgiven once again but some of us perhaps for the first time we pray that you would give us a heart like Naaman's heart that was in the end humbled and thankful we pray in Jesus name thanks John John's going to stay up here for a time of Question and answer. Um, well, questions at least. Questions, yes, <laughs> and attempted answers. Attempted answers. <laughs> uh, I think you'll find maybe the first question will be easy. If we could just put up the QR code, the big one, so that people can zap that or type in the address. Um, are you happy to do this live? Let, let's see what happens. Come? All right, so. I'll tell you in a minute. This one, John, may be a simple yes or no answer, um, or maybe not. Um, do you reckon Ahab is the dumbest, dumb, dumb, dumbest king ever? <laughs> That's a closed question, or you can make it an open question. Uh, he, he's certainly com a good competitor for that, for that. This is Ahab we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, okay. Uh, as the story rolls on here, there, there are some who compete, compete with him. Um, but yeah, uh, it's interesting. One Kings gives a lot of time to Ahab, and I think it is because he's such an idiot. <laughs> yeah. But you've you got to sort of say that humbly because in the idiocy in the idiocy of Ahab you see your own idiocy from time to time mm. um, but uh, yeah he certainly was an idiot yeah yeah um, what are the modern bowels that you feel we're tempted to turn to uh, it's so complicated isn't it what are the modern bowels thanks for that question whoever asked that question <laughs> um, where do we start um, if, we, if we just take Baal as representing an alternative to God then um, we're living in a strange time and I really don't want to get into some sort of commentary on this I'm really interested in, in the subject and I'm sure many of you are too and we should be thoughtful about it but we're living in a time in Western civilization where we are reinventing reality uh, without God um, I think it's fair to say that we've lived in a through a, through a period. I certainly, uh, in my younger years, <laughs> were living through an extraordinary time uh, where a civilization had been built with certain understandings that came to us from the Christian faith. Um, this is, 
you know, many of you will be aware of this is an interesting, interesting and fascinating debate going on out there in the world at the moment about that, about how uh, the Western world, particularly the Western world, was, was built on truths that came from the Christian gospel. Uh, it didn't mean that West Western civilization was Christian, but there were truths that came from the Christian gospel. Uh, and uh, over the last little while, it's not very long, but there has been a deliberate and forceful turning away from and rejection of God and the truths that flow from knowing he is there. Uh, and that is getting get into, the, into the messes that we are. I don't want to get into the particular debates, but you'll be aware I'm alluding to the whole gender business that's going on. Uh, the horrific things that are happening as a result of that uh, uh, of that discussion, um, the uh, whole idea of whether there is such a thing as truth. I don't know. We, we mustn't go. On. I mean, you, you just cut me off, Tim. When you want to cut me off, it, it fascinated me. Did you read the story about uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, going to New Zealand? Hear that? Uh, Richard Dawkins recently visited New Zealand, where. Let us say they're just a bit ahead of us in this downward slide. Uh, and he was, a, he was absolutely alarmed and um, discombobulated, there's a good word, uh, mm -hmm. at, at what he discovered. Because he discovered that in the curriculum in the primary school, um, Maori myths and accounts for the world had to be taught alongside and with the same status as the scientific account of the world. Right? Uh, because th th there's no truth anymore. Li and, and he, of course, is, is appalled at this because he's a modernist, not a postmodernist, uh, and, uh, and wrote and had interviews how terrible, terrible this is, without recognising, in my judgement, my humble opinion, and I don't understand these things very well, but it's the very movement that Richard Dawkins headed up that has led to this state of affairs, where, we, wh wh where, where the... Um, um, you know, the laws of gravity are to be taken as true as uh, Maori origins of the, you know, the, the, this mixing of things where, where there, there isn't anything. And, w uh, and uh, in the New Zealand curriculum, there was the insistence that we mustn't prioritise what was called Western science, <laughs> right? And Dawkins, of course, said there's no such thing as Western science, there's only science. I agree with him. But he's a modernist, not a postmodernist. A postmodernist, which is the world we're living in now, says we don't know anything. We can't understand anything. There are only all we've all we've got is everybody everybody's individual point of view. Um, there you go. Mm. That's where Bale takes. But, but it is a, it is a, it is a paganisation of a, 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 a of the world, and it from the position of Christian faith, it looks absurd. But in the middle of it, it doesn't. You say Richard Dawkins is discombobulated. Yeah. How many syllables in that? Um, but you mentioned that he, he, you find it surprising that he's got to that position, yet he kick-started it. So for those who maybe don't know about Richard Dawkins, uh, Richard what, what Dawkins do you see with him? Richard Dawkins is perhaps the leading, I call them, I, it's a bit, I, I, I was going to say I call them angry atheists, but I repent. I won't call them that. I just call them atheists. Um, <laughs> But uh, the, the Christopher Hitchens, uh, uh, Sam Harris, uh, th there's a group of them, and Richard Dawkins is sort of the father figure of them all. He's, he's written a number, of, he's a biologist at Oxford University, he's written a number of very influential books. 
which are uh, front-on assaults against any kind of religious faith. Right? Now, much of what he writes I like because he, much of what he writes against is stuff that, that we would call superstition. But his, uh, his vehement attacks on uh, any kind of belief, any serious belief in God uh, has, has, has been very, very influential, very, very widely. And when the consequences of, of doing that, the consequences of taking God out of your knowledge and, and, and trying to build a society that repudiates the idea of God, uh, I, you couldn't work it out in advance, but, but it's being played out before us. Mm. You, because you it's a, it, it is a huge subject, but the whole idea, every idea we value gets, gets corrupted. You know, the idea of human rights was given to us by Christianity. It really was. Historically, that's, that's an indisputable fact. Out of Christian thinking came the idea of human rights. It didn't come out of Buddhism. It didn't come out of... It came out of Christian thinking. Now you discard the Christian thinking and human rights is a c complete quagmire. What is a right? Why is it a right? See, human rights understood, if we understood in, in a Christian framework, is before God. God has made us. God made you, God made me, and therefore we, and God made you in his image, made me in his image, therefore we look at each other as equal before God. Take God away, we're obviously not equal. You're stronger than me, I can assure you. Hmm. Many of you are cleverer than me. We're not equal. You can't, you can't have equality when you take God away, not really, just at a philosophical level without a, without a reference point like that. And so human equality is just completely confusing now. Human equality means we've all got to be the same. Hmm. I reckon this next Sorry, question mate. will roll on from... No, thank you. <laughs> We're very appreciative. So this will probably roll on from what you've been saying. Um, what would you say to those who live in light of Romans 1 that identify with an atheistic paradigm and reject God's existence, that God's apparent revelation to mankind is not sufficient? Do you track with that? Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. Um, that's what Richard Dawkins says. So Richard Dawkins uh, will say, well, there's no evidence for God. But I'll tell you what, I'm the one who'll determine what evidence is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is caricaturing him. Okay, this is caricaturing Richard Dawkins because he can't see God down a microscope, because he can't find an equation that concludes there is a God, because he can't, so he's got certain ways of thinking that he will allow. And he... And he um, again, I'm not expert in this, but here I, here I go anyway. Um, it never stopped me before. Um, <laughs> he seems to restrict human knowledge, true human knowledge, to one category, namely scientific knowledge, knowledge of scientific evidence. Now, most of our knowledge doesn't come like that. Most of the things that you and I know, and I'm not talking about Christians, but most, most things humans know, we don't get by doing experiments. We do it by somebody telling us, somebody we trust telling us. Uh, most of my historical knowledge, I haven't gone and read the documents. Well, I, I believe people who have. Right? Most, of your, most of your knowledge um, of what happened yesterday in America, you weren't there, you didn't see it. Uh, somebody told you that you trust. Uh, these days, you don't trust many people. But, if, if so, but, but you, you know, most of our knowledge comes from a testimony from somebody who is trustworthy. 
Christians have come to believe that the testimony of the Bible is trustworthy. We believe someone who's told us something. Uh, we, we consider them trustworthy. It's, it, 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 but it's a, it's a category of knowledge that the Richard Dawkins want to get rid of. Now, if you, if you say, oh, well, God hasn't given me enough evidence, who do you think should determine the, the right amount of evidence? Do you think it's you or God? If God wants to make himself known, are you the one who should stand up and say, this is what I require of him? I think there's a, just, a, just a tad of arrogance in that mm. that won't stand up in the long run. God has decided what is sufficient evidence. He has made himself known and he has invited us to come and listen. Come and listen. Mm. Mm. Elisha's servant is an interesting guy, someone has said. I feel like there's a number of Christians like him. Do you? Are we talking about Gehazi here? Gehazi, yeah. Gehazi. Gehazi. Um, yeah, he's an interesting story. He, his story goes up and down. He, he appears later again, in the, later again in the book. You can, you can chase him through. Um, I'll just say yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. May I add uh, one of my questions in, just reflecting on Naaman? Um, so we know, we know that to follow God, when you become a Christian, you, you know, we're called to count the cost and turn away uh, from our worldly lifestyle. That's what repentance is. So that's on the one hand. Yet on the other hand, we know that the world is very complex and we can't be completely pure in this life. And you've got Naaman who asks for forgiveness about when, when he's kind of participating or helping mm. uh, his, his, his king bow mm. down in a pagan temple. Just wonder, you know, oh, how yeah. do we use that I, I to kind of navigate our situations? It, it, it should be quite encouraging. It, uh, um, Elisha basically says, don't worry about it. Mm. Uh, think about it, but don't worry about it. Don't be, don't be uptight that, that situations that you find yourself in where you have no choice, that was what he was describing, and you do something, God can see your heart. And as he bows down in the temple of the pomegranate, uh, he knows it's a pomegranate, uh, and he knows who is God, and God knows that. And God, God isn't troubled. God isn't troubled by that. Um, that doesn't mean you live like live how you like, and just yield to every pressure. But it does mean that in this complicated world, don't be uptight about living in the and and whatever. Uh, this isn't a direct implication, but whatever we do, we we mustn't withdraw into our into our ghetto. We, we must be salt and light in the world. We must actually, we must actually take the word and think things through. There'll be stuff we don't understand and we can't understand. That's okay. And you, re you continue to re remain faithful to Christ. But you don't, I suppose what you could draw from the, the story of Naaman is in order to be faithful to the one God in all the earth, you don't have to withdraw from paganism. That is, withdraw from the pagan world. You can be you can you can have a job in the pagan world. You can be the you can be the, the right hand man of the king in the pagan world. Uh, and will that be easy? No, it won't be easy. It'll be all sorts of hard things for you to do. There'll be some things and you might even get sacked for some of the things you do, that's true. But don't don't take the the really easy path is just to to withdraw, you know. Naaman didn't say, I'm gonna live in Israel now, it's safer there, because it wasn't actually. But um uh, yeah, I, I, I think that that's really quite important and encouraging for us who find ourselves living in a pagan world. Uh, 
don't, yeah, don't allow our, our churches, and sometimes churches that I've been in, I, I felt we, we, we have become like a little bubble. And uh, really, we sort of feel we're safe here, away from the, the terrible world out there. No, we've been placed in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. And we, we, must, we must engage with it. Mm. Mm. Okay, thank you. That is encouraging. Look, um, we've got plenty more questions here, and we'll have another question time tomorrow. But let me ask you one last question. Um, um, oh, yes, sorry. Here we go. Um, so this is about the morning tea question. Thanks for that. Uh, someone has asked what your opinion is of that question that you asked at morning tea. What accounts for people in our world turning anywhere except God in our time of need? You remember that question you posed? No, I don't. But uh, <laughs> um, well, it's a very good question, and, it, it, <laughs> and uh, I don't know who asked it. But, uh, um, and I'm sure it could be answered at various levels. It's, it's fascinating to try and answer it historically, and there are books being written now that are trying to do that. To work out, and you'll be aware of some of those books. Um, I'm just trying to think of the name of the author. Uh, Glenn Shrivner, mm -hmm. uh, The Air We Breathe. Uh, it's a fascinating book, and a very readable book, and it's, it's sort of grappling with that kind of question. How did we get where we are? How did this happen to our world? Uh, he's really riding on the back of a, of a big book, but a, again, a fascinating book by Tom Holland uh, that many of you may have heard of. And Tom Holland is not a Christian, but he's a historian who's uh, very much aware that everything he values in his world and his culture has been given to him by Christianity. Mm. Um, um, and he traces how, th how that has happened. Uh, it's... But the, the, the sort of theological, deeper level answer is just sin. It's not new. You see, it, it's in Romans 1. So it's happened recently in our experience, but it, what, what has happened in our experience as a culture is just an expression of what has been happening since Genesis 3. There is uh, human, the human sinful heart that wants to do without God uh, comes to the surface in different ways through history, and it's come to the surface uh, in this particular way. But uh, it's very important to us, for us to recognise that the things that are collapsing, that some people, quite a lot of people actually, really want to hold on to, are things that Christianity has given us. And I don't know that they'll ever recover from the massive, hostile rejection of Christianity that our society has done. Has, has played. We could talk about that at some length, but we better stop. Mm. Well, while we give you a, a round of applause, the band will come up. Thank you, John, Don't for this that. morning. No applause. So that clap is to say thank you, and thank we you. look forward to more as you continue with us tomorrow. Thank, thank you. you.